Coming up on this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. We need everybody on board. So whether you can just write a letter, whether you can change something in your life, whether you make a compost pile, wherever you can fit in, there's something that you can do. Hey everyone, Dr. Hyman here. Recently I shared with you that I'm really excited to be working out with a trainer for the first time in my life. I used to hate going to the gym and I wasn't quite sure what to do when it came to weightlifting, but now I'm really enjoying having a great workout routine and I feel stronger than I've ever felt. Now, while I love the workouts, I'm not always loving feeling sore the next day and that's why I'm excited about a new tool that I found that helps me recover faster. It's a red light therapy device called Juve. That's J-O-O-V-V. Now, this red light therapy is a super gentle, non-invasive treatment where a device with medical-grade LED lights delivers concentrated light to your skin and your cells. It helps your body produce more cellular energy and reduce oxidative stress or free radicals. And that helps tired and damaged muscle tissue repair and regenerate faster. Now, it couldn't be easier. I just stand in front of this relaxing red light for a few minutes a day. That's it. (laughs) Really, that's it. Not only is this great for muscle recovery, it can also help you recover from injuries, it can help you sleep better, it can fight fine lines and wrinkles, and boost collagen production for the whole body. To check out Juve products for yourself, head over to juve.com forward slash pharmacy. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash pharmacy. Once you're there, you'll see a special bonus that the Juve team is giving away to my listeners. Just use the code pharmacy, that's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y at the checkout. This is one of the simplest recovery and anti-aging tools available to use right in your own home. I hope you'll check it out and see why I love using Juve. With all the factory farm animal products at the supermarket, it's hard to find meat that actually supports your health goals instead of hurting them. Feedlot cows are pumped full of antibiotics and hormones and they're fed corn that makes the meat not so healthy. And that is why I love grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef from ButcherBox. Ground beef is probably the most dynamic protein out there. I love how quickly it makes up a healthy meal without a lot of fuss or muss. Grass-fed meat is also better for the environment, so you can feel better eating it. In fact, grass-fed and grass-finished beef actually helps put carbon back into the soil, reversing climate change. And with ButcherBox, I get 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef delivered right to my doorstep. They also offer wild-caught salmon, which I love including in my weekly meal plans too. And grass-fed ground beef is the first protein I recommend for people who are trying to get more comfortable in the kitchen because you can just throw in a pan with some salt, herbs, and spices, and it just makes a great meal. My favorite way to cook grass-fed ground beef is by sauteing it with lots of fresh garlic and onions and peppers and cumin and chili oil and oregano and tossing it over a bed of greens for a super easy homemade taco salad. Just talking about this makes me hungry. So if you've been looking for a way to get higher quality protein in your own diet, be sure to check out the grass-fed beef from ButcherBox, along with all their other humanely raised meats that are never given antibiotics or added hormones. They make eating well easy, delicious, and accessible. And now through March 31st, 2020, new subscribers to ButcherBox will receive ground beef for life. (laughs) That's right. Sign up today and ButcherBox will send you two pounds of 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef free in every box for the life of your subscription. Plus, listeners will get an additional $20 off their first box. So to receive this limited-time offer, go to butcherbox.com forward slash pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. That's butcherbox.com forward slash pharmacy. Now let's dive into today's show, the next episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. This is Dr. Mark Hyman, and it's Pharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a place for conversations that matter. And today we have another very special guest tell you about the future of food, and that guest is me. <laughs> and I get to be interviewed by my good friend, partner, and CEO, Drew Proet. And guess what? The book on which this conversation is based, Food Fix, How to Save Our Health, our economy, our communities, and our planet, one bite at a time, is out today. So go to your bookstore. Please get it. It's going to help spread the word. Buy 10 copies and give them to people you know. Give it to your congressman, senator, your state representatives, the governor. Give it to everybody because we got to change the food system. Guys, it's Drew Perot here. Uh, if my voice sounds familiar, I'm the host of the Broken Raid podcast. I'm Mark's business partner, good friend, known him for a long time. And I'm going to pull in something else. I'm going to pull in a little bit of a guilt trip. If you've benefited, whether you just found out about Dr. Hyman yesterday, whether you don't 
even know who he is and this is the first time you're listening to this podcast. Some crazy friends send you the podcast. Whether you've been listening to him for the last 10, 15 years since he's been doing this work publicly, and if you've enjoyed any of his free content, I want to make a plea to you, which is this is the most important book that he's written. Our team truly feels that because it's a book about how to save the planet, the economy, our health, how to reverse climate change, how to look out for the po- those people who don't have the ability to look out for themselves. And I couldn't think of a more important time for this book to be out there and for this conversation to be had. So if you've enjoyed any of Mark's material over the last few days, weeks, months, or years, please pick up the book today. And that's my little guilt trip for your audience. Thank you, Drew. Well, I'm excited to be here today for part two of our conversation where we turn the tables and we talk to Dr. Mark Hyman and we put him in the interview seat to talk about how he lives, how he eats, and the inside scoop about his new book and movement, Food Fix. Dr. Mark Hyman, welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. Thanks for having me, Drew. I mean, I'll, thanks. I'm, I should thank myself for having me. I don't know how I go here. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Thank you, Drew. It's super meta. <laughs> Let's jump right into the conversation. We ended off part one with talking about something a little controversial that's been out there, which is this advice that we heard, many of us heard for many, many years and said that when it comes to food, if we want to help the climate, yes. we should go vegan. 100%. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really powerful meme out there. And there's a lot of energy and a lot of media and a lot of people and celebrities talking about how important this is. And I think they're right, but, and the way they're right is that factory farming of animals is one of the most destructive forces on the planet. It's horrible for the animals, it's horrible for the climate and the environment, and it's horrible for the people who eat it. So it's a triple threat to everything that we care about. And I can go into all the details about how confined animal feeding operations, contribute to climate change through the ways in which we grow the food for them, for the deforestation, the destruction of the soils, the chemical intensive agriculture, the mishandling of manure and waste, the off-gassing of methane. I mean, I can go on and on. But it's a bad news story. However, that doesn't mean that growing animals in a way that regenerates soil, that limits or eliminates the use of chemicals, that preserves water resources, that actually reverses climate change by sucking carbon out of the environment is a bad thing. Now, you don't have to eat animals. If you don't want to eat animals, I don't care. Yeah, you were vegetarian. I was a vegetarian, vegan, I've been everything. And and I have no objection. I have many patients who are um, you know, morally vegan and Buddhist patients, it's fine. You have to know what you're doing because you you know you can also be a chips and soda vegan. So you have to be whole. I was that growing up, <laughs> chips and soda vegan, vegetarian. That yeah. was me. Yeah. So you know you gotta be uh, Twinkies is vegetarian. So I mean I think we really want to be smart about how we do it. But you know people also don't understand that conventional agriculture that grows plants is inherently very destructive. So if you're having a corn tortilla or a soy burger, an impossible GMO soy burger. It's incredibly destructive to living things. How? Seven billion animals die every year from agriculture, from growing vegetables and plants. Why? Because you're destroying their habitat, the moles, the rabbits, the birds, the insects. I mean, so we're not getting away from the fact that just being human on the planet, we're gonna be killing things. Now you can have a regenerative farm or a regenerative ranch and use animals, which are essential, and I'll talk about why, but you don't have to eat them, <laughs> but you have to have them. So to get rid of all animal agriculture is a mistake for environmental reasons and climate reasons. In fact, like I said, the UN, in, in the last podcast, the UN said that one of the very few ways that we have to quickly arrest and slow down and reverse climate change is using regenerative agriculture, which means the following. One, it's specific techniques of farming. So not tilling the ground, which erodes the soil. Using cover crops, so there's no bare soil, so the soil can't wash away. Using crop rotations that put different nutrients in the soil. It means no or limited use of chemicals and fertilizers. And it means special integration of animals through what we call holistic management or 
managed grazing or adaptive multi-paddock grazing. And what in English that means is you take animals through mob grazing that are in tight herds and you move them frequently around different areas of the farm to graze down half the grass, to poop and pee, disturb the soil. That generates soil. That is the only way to generate soil. So if you want to build soil, you, you can't do it without animals. And whether you're vegetarian or vegan or not, it's just the way it is. And, and I think, you know, when you look at, for example, the, the life cycle analysis that was done by Qantas, which is an independent life cycle group, looked at, at um, a GMO soy burger, the Impossible Burger, compared it to a regeneratively raised beef burger. And the Impossible Burger was way better than a factory farm burger from the climate change efforts. But a regeneratively raised beef burger was better. In fact, one Impossible Burger added three and a half kilos of carbon to the environment, whereas a regeneratively raised beef burger took out three and a half kilos. And that includes all the methane and everything, all the inputs, life cycle, total life cycle. So you have to basically eat one beef regenerative burger to offset the carbon emissions of a soy burger. So the arguments can't be oversimplified. It's not vegan or not. It's it's what meat. And someone said, I think Russ Conzer, quoted by uh, Nicolette Nyman, said, it's not the cow, it's the how. Yeah, and it's you recently did a cow. video on that. And it's, it's super not- important to get that message out there. And I think the other thing that you would say, and it's part of your action guide, is that the one thing that we can all do is take a pledge to just avoid factory farm meat. Yeah, 100%. That should be a, a zero tolerance policy. Because that does make a difference. Makes a huge difference, huge difference. And you know, think about, people say, oh, the cows are contributing. Well, we had more you know, ruminants running around this country than we do cows right now. Buffalo, elk, deer, antelope. And they were all pooping and peeing and farting and you know, making methane and burping. And we didn't have climate change back then. Why? Because they were building soil and soil was sucking it all out of the environment. Uh, that's how we got 40 to 50 feet of topsoil in some areas of the country because of these migrating herds of animals. And and people don't understand that. And people say, well, you know, we're generally raised beef. Sounds like a great idea. And maybe it's an elitist thing. But, you know, this guy named uh, Alan Williams is a PhD farmer, rancher, um, specialist in regenerative agriculture, said that if you look at how many cows are produced every year in this country, about 29 million cows are slaughtered for eating, that... Um, we could, if we took the U.S. conservation land that's not being used, if we took degraded lands that are, are left fallow, if we turned some of our soy and corn crops that are used for factory farming of animals to feed them, turn that into regenerative farms, we literally could produce over 59 million cows a year. Now, that's almost twice what we produce now. So the argument that it's not scalable just doesn't make any sense. And and the reason the cost is high is because it's scarce right now and not many people are doing it. And farmers aren't supported to do it. They're supported to do other stuff. But imagine if all the crop subsidies and all the uh, agriculture supports went to transform regenerative ag. And that's one of the things that I'm really working on is how do we scale this? You know, How do we get government policy to change? How do we create business innovation to make it work? I mean, there's a great, uh, I think it's a private equity company uh, called Farmland LP that's buying up conventional farmland, converting it to regenerative agriculture, and going from single-digit profits to double-digit profits, 40%, 50% profits. Their first fund had a 67% profit. Wow. <laughs> right? From turning a regular old conventional farm into a regenerative farm. And on top of that, they created what they call ecosystem services. So what are ecosystem services? Well, ecosystem services are all the things that we use up from the earth. You know, we basically borrow or take or steal, and we look at it, about $125 trillion every year from the earth in terms of goods and services. Now certain countries are paying farmers to create ecosystem benefit. In Costa Rica, for example, they pay farmers for making soil, for conserving water, for increasing biodiversity. And there's movements around the world to increase these ecosystem service payments. Well, this farmland LP, they actually created $21 million of ecosystem benefit on their regenerative farms while making a 67% profit, while the conventional farms made far less, like three, four, five, six percent profit, 
and actually cost us eight million in ecosystem services. Because we can't keep on taking, taking, taking. Right. We have to give back to this earth and, because it's our home. Yeah, and the truth is like people think, oh, it's not economical. It's, no, it's like the super great business model. I'm like, I want to invest in that. And there's billions and billions of dollars flowing into food and ag uh, investments that are trying to solve these problems. So the government's way behind the curve. And that's going to change. All right, we're going to. If I have anything to do with it, <laughs> which I do a little, we're going to shift and we're going to take it a little personal here because the foundation of the diet that you teach people inside of the Food Fix book is the Pecan Diet. Yeah, you'll be talking a lot about the Pecan Diet. Yeah. Your last cookbook was about it. Uh, for those who are not familiar, give us the quick pitch on the Pecan Diet. Well, I mean, it came about as an accident, kind of as a joke, because like. The diet wars are ridiculous, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I read an article uh, recently in JAMA where based on a diet article about meat, there was thousands and thousands of, of hostile emails that came into this medical journal uh, when they reported that they thought meat wasn't the problem based on, on the literature. There was a number of studies published. They said it was more violent communication than they'd had for anything they've ever done, including when they published against gun violence from the NRA. <laughs> so I think there's just such a, a conflict about this. And, and I, I said, we've got to stop these diet wars. We've got to work together to sort of come up with what are the same eating principles that everybody can sort of agree on. And, and there, there are things that are based on great science and combined with common sense. And also I realized that we need to not just include our health in the equation, but the health of our planet and the biodiversity of the planet. I mean, the way we farm has killed off half of all livestock species, 90% of all edible plant species that existed on earth, and about 75% of pollinator species on which we depend. So we, we kind of have to wake up to eating a diet that's not going to do all that damage. So what is a vegan diet? Well, uh, it's kind of a joke, like combination of paleo and vegan, right? Um, and it became a thing. I just meant it as a spoof, like a parody on, on these diet wars. And then I began to think, well, may, maybe there's something to it. And I started thinking about, well, basically what they agree on is far more than they disagree on, right? This two separate camps, which couldn't be more extreme, right? They both agree we should be not eating any processed food. They both agree we should be eating only whole foods. They both agree we should be eating tons of vegetables and fruits and plant foods, nuts, seeds, whole grains. You know, I mean, paleo doesn't believe in whole grains, but 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 most of it's pretty straightforward, right? No sugar, processed foods, chemicals, hormones, antibiotics. Like, it's it's real food. And the only difference is where you get your protein. Beans and grains are animal protein. That's the only difference. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's a lot of commonality here. Let's get on common ground. And then I begin to think, well, if you're eating, it should be thinking about your health and the planet's health. And when you eat in that way, it's a double win, right? So if you're eating, you know, healthier protein, for example, regeneratively raised beef, you know, grass-fed animals, you know, pasture-raised poultry, if you're having fish that's sustainably harvested or are organically farmed or wild caught or wild caught but it, you know there's a lot of overfishing so there's a lot of ways to learn how to actually eat fish it's not part of the the damage that we're doing to the oceans right so it's how do you eat the right fish the right chicken the right dairy the, and so forth so dairy may not be all bad if it's grass-fed sheep or goat it might be fine if it's heirloom cow that's a2 casein that might be okay if you tolerate it not everybody can so i think i think there's just really simple principles that are are broken down in the book that tell you exactly how to eat well for you and the planet where you use food as medicine and you use food as medicine to heal yourself and to heal the planet. Was there anything that you had in your diet or something that you would indulge in or something that was part of it that even if it might've been healthy or okay, you found out over the process of research, even if it's been in the last few years, maybe not necessarily for this book, that you found that maybe it's not the best thing for the environment. Maybe I shouldn't have this in my diet as much as I did previously. Like sometimes people talk about like almonds and how much water they oh, use. Yeah, yeah. People talk about, yeah, you know, you know grass-fed uh, lamb and how it comes from New Zealand a lot yeah, of it. Yeah. It's flown over here on airplanes. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. is no, there it, anything it's controversial true. It's like true. that? It's true. Like, you know, um, I used to eat a ton of almonds and almond butter and almond milk and I really have cut way back. And the reason is not that almonds aren't healthy, is that, you know, most of the almonds grown are in California. At least the ones are from the U.S. Yeah, but like that's most of the almonds in the world. And there are these huge orchards that have to be pollinated all at once. 
And bees are flown in from around the world on jumbo 747s. They're released into the into the space, and they often are, uh, you know, not doing well, and they're harming the pollinator species. It's incredibly intensive. We talk about how much water it uses to create beef. Well, that's only if you're using feedlot beef, because most of the water for for grass-fed beef, it's just rainwater, right? That's not used otherwise. Uh, but but not for, for almonds. It's it's hugely irrigated and uses huge amounts of water. And in California, I mean, there was huge droughts and floods, and it's just sort of worsening the whole climate change thing. So I think, I think uh, I've been eating less almonds. And also from a functional medicine perspective is that they really, you as a functional medicine doctor, I always hear from like you or Liz, Dr. Liz Bohm, who's a past guest on this podcast and a doctor at the Ultra Wellness Center, we kind of have almonds in all of our health food now. So sometimes that can be very irritating to the body. It's almost like having coconuts in everything that we eat. Too much of even a health food can actually be challenging and irritating to the gut sometimes. Yeah, you know, I mean, people die from too much water. <laughs> you know, when you when you look at marathon runners who get high. I think that's an extreme version. <laughs> but I'm I think the saying... almonds and the coconut is a little bit more like everything has almonds now. Everything has coconuts. Yeah. And are we really designed to have that much of that? Probably not. You want, you know, we used to eat 800 species of plants. That's a lot of plants when we were hunter-gatherers. And the average person now uh, depends on maybe 12, if you're lucky, you know? So when I look around and I'm out at a different events with you and other things like that, the first question that people have is, Dr. Hyman, what the heck should I eat? The second question that they ask is, Dr. Hyman, what the heck do you eat? And everybody's so curious. So I want to talk about today. This is a day that you're traveling. You're in LA. You're doing press for your new book, which is out today, foodfixbook.com. What'd you eat on a day like this? Okay, well, um, I woke up uh, early enough. So I, ha I had to go to a TV show this morning and I woke up early and I, I used my sophisticated technology, my iPhone to Google a place to eat in my neighborhood where I was staying at a friend's house. There was a good restaurant. And so I walked like 20 minutes to this really good restaurant. I looked at the menu before it and I had uh, red baked eggs, which is a lot of vegetables and baked eggs. Uh, and uh, and I had a, 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 a oat milk latte. And that was and, it. And what time of day was that? That was like 7.30 in the morning. And that's pretty early. Do yeah. you normally eat that early? Uh, it depends. Like I knew I had a very busy day today and I had to like have some energy. Uh, so I did. And I ate, but sometimes I don't. I do like longer fasts. And then I had, uh, for lunch, I had a salad with uh, grass-fed steak, little bits of it, uh, avocado, like kale. Uh, I had some banana chips with salsa. That, you know, someone brought them for me from town. And we're going to go to a great restaurant for dinner. So I'm, like, I'm usually pretty focused even when I travel. And I think, you know, people kind of fall apart and say, well, when I travel, it's hard. And it depends. Like, you know, I was in Des Moines, Iowa, and I was struggling. I went to the hotel, like, can I have some vegetables? And they gave me, like, green beans, which are from a can, with brown sugar sauce on it. <laughs> it was terrible. But then I was like, wait a minute. I think, you know, Asian restaurants always have vegetables. So I'm like, where's the latest local Chinese restaurant? And I, I went there before my PBS show and I found this amazing place and I had Chinese broccoli and all these vegetables and like whole, really delicious food. So I'm like pretty good hunter and gatherer when it comes to figuring out what to do on the road. <laughs> and also I have a bag full of food. So in my backpack, I have enough food for a day. I have turkey jerky, I have grass-fed beef jerky, I have you know, nuts, I have nut butter packets, I have bars. So I have all kinds of stuff that, that keeps me going if I can't get what I need. So on a day like today, you recounted three meals that you had. Do you always have three meals a day? And how do you vary it? And how do you incorporate things like intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating into your schedule? Well, I, I do uh, vary my diet. depends on what's going on. But I do like to go for 14, 16 hours without eating. And if I eat dinner and I don't eat till 10 o'clock the next morning, it's fine. Uh, and I, I often find that I feel way better doing that. So it's not 100% of the days, but it depends on what I'm doing. Does Dr. Hyman have any vices when it comes to food? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think uh, it's interesting. And my wife and I, in 2020, we decided we're going to start the year clean. So we, you know, ate only vegetables for a few days. We did a three-day green juice fast. And then we came out of it really slowly. And I've noticed my energy is way better. My taste buds are totally different. I don't want alcohol. I don't really want sugar. It's like, I, I'm not interested in even like cheating on a piece of, you know, gluten-free bread. Like, it's just, it's interesting. My whole preferences have changed. So sometimes when I get, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, on the road or whatever, or I want to cheat, I'll have like chocolate. I like cho- I like Hue chocolate, which is Hue Kitchen chocolate. is unbelievable. And full disclosure, I'm an investor, and I only invested because I wanted to get free chocolate. But it was, <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Of course, they deliver to my apartment, and my wife eats most of it before I get home, so it's terrible. But anyway, it's really good. And uh, and uh, yeah, I, I don't. I, it's interesting. The more I take care of myself, the less things I want to do that are harmful. So last night I went to bed early. I slept like eight and a half hours. We know I did yoga last night. Even though I'm traveling, I got off the plane. I, I just try to like do the things that I know take care of myself because you know I have a lot of work to do and uh, I need to be a warrior to do it. And I I'm training for you know a marathon. I I, I think people when I posted on Instagram that I was training for an Ironman, I didn't, I actually didn't mean an Ironman. I meant like the Ironman triathlon of changing food policy, making food as medicine and transforming a regenerative ag. That's the three events that I'm in. <laughs> you know, oftentimes we become even more committed to our goals and dreams when there's a risk of them being taken away. And you had a big wake up call that you've been very honest about mm, with past yeah. podcasts. Get, uh, yeah guests, you've talked about it with them and the audience and also in your book, yeah. Brain Docu series, you got really sick. Yeah. Like really sick. Yeah. Through a bunch of different events that were going on, including mold in your house and other aspects. How did that change your understanding when it came to your own health? And what did you start doing differently after you went through that bout in that period of time? You know, obviously I sort of take care of myself, but I was sort of lying to myself because <laughs> I worked too hard, you know, and if I have any problem, it's being a workaholic because I feel like there's so much to be done in the world and I feel so passionate about it and I want to do it. And, you know, I try to eat well, I try to sleep well, I try to exercise enough, not probably enough, but, you know, skim by. Um, but, you know, like most doctors, we were trained to gut it out. Like if you ever tried to work a 36-hour shift nonstop, like it's not normal for a human being to do that. And you learn to ignore your body signals you learn to just push through and gut it out you know lunches for sissies and you know sleep when you die is kind of like the way we learn in medical school and residency and i had mold in my house and i had a cough for a year and i was really sick and uh, i didn't you know, i just kind of kept pushing through it thought it would get better and then i had root canal they went bad had an antibiotic which i shouldn't have taken i had steroids for my lungs because they're all inflamed from the mold cleaned up my house. I mean, I gutted my house, did the whole thing, but I still got sick. Then I broke my arm and everything just crashed. And I was in bed for five months. I couldn't do anything. I literally was cognitively impaired, emotionally just absent. Uh, My body wasn't working. I had severe pain 24-7 in my stomach. I had colitis, gastritis. I mean, I was just, I lost 30 pounds. And I I was like, I could feel death hovering around. Like I I literally could feel it. And you were trying all the functional medicine tricks at the time that you knew. And the hard part was that I remember talking to you during this time many times. I don't you remember You didn't really anything. know what was going on. No. At one point in time, we thought you were being poisoned by somebody. Yeah. It was like, yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, is the food is the food industry finally gotten to you? You know, maybe, maybe. They're watching. They're definitely watching. I promise you that. Uh, you know, it was fascinating. I, I tried a lot of the normal tricks, and then I, and then I really focused on sort of what I call, you know, next-level functional medicine, which is the whole science of how do you – activate the body's healing systems you know you know i can give you a vitamin to replace deficiencies i can give you probiotics but when your system is so broken you sometimes need to engage in more aggressive kinds of things that actually activate your healing mechanisms i did ozone i did stem cells i did ivs i did hyperbaric oxygen and it was enough to like shock my body out of the stuck inflammation that it was in what's cool about that is that uh, as part of uh, the food fix uh bonuses you've created this longevity masterclass Mm. and so many of those tricks that came during that time from you just being at your sickest that you've ever been probably since the start of when you first got sick like how many years ago was that like 30 years years ago yeah in china from heavy metals and the mercury that was there yeah this is the sickest you've been through that time a lot of that you put into your masterclass i did you know I, i i think if i pray about anything it's like okay god like I think I've gotten ill enough in my life and had enough problems and discovered the solutions to help so many people. I don't need to, I need to do it again. I'm like, I feel good. Like, I'm I like, gra- Mark, we don't need to make I want to graduate. I don't, I don't, I, and I, now at 60, I feel healthier and stronger and fitter and more on purpose than ever in my life. And I, and it used, I had to use all the functional medicine technologies that I know how to use to to make it work. But I, I'm so committed to getting this out to the world. And I, you know, I just, 
I, you know, honestly, um, you know, a lot of what what's driven me is anger, um, is anger, anger that we have solutions that are not being applied. Functional medicine isn't everything to everybody, but for most of the problems that we're suffering from, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, autoimmune diseases, digestive problems, allergies, depression, I mean, you name it, the list goes on. It is the best toolkit we have today, period. And, and, and it makes me angry that not everybody has access to it, that not everybody um, is trained in it in medical school, and that not uh, enough research is being done about it. And that's why I'm at Cleveland Clinic. That's why I'm so working so hard in Washington to change policies so we can make nutrition in medical school. So we can create a food as medicine initiative where when you prescribe as a doctor food, it gets reimbursed and helps people, where we can develop programs that are funded by insurance and, and healthcare that actually do better and, and make people healthier and save money. You mentioned something, and we talked about it a little bit in part one of the podcast. You mentioned a little bit about prescribing food. Paint a picture and a vision for us of what it would look like to have food pharmacies in every hospital around America. Well, I mean, the, and how that would actually save us money. We think about yeah. giving things away, and sometimes when people are libertarian, or let's say that they're a little bit more like everybody should pull themselves up through the bootstraps, yeah. and they should really be able to figure it out themselves. Tell us how some of the solutions in the book, like having a food pharmacy in every hospital, yeah. would actually save us money. I mean, this is not my opinion. This is just well-validated scientific data. It's been published around the world and, and, and it works. Uh, you know, in, in, um, and just for example, one, one model of incentivizing healthy prescriptions for people and disincentivizing bad food, right? So cheaper to buy fruits and vegetables, more expensive to buy soda, right? When you do that, and you put a 30% you know, premium on, on soda and a 30% discount on vegetables, let's say, you would, if you, and you, and you, if you did that at scale, it would save 3.1 million heart attacks and $100 billion in savings. That is incredible. Right? At, at Geisinger created a food pharmacy where they took food insecure people, gave them $2,400 worth of food a year and food for their family and support on education on how to eat and do it and all, all so forth. In in this group of food insecure type 2 diabetics who are poor, poorly controlled, not only did their diabetes dramatically get better, but they saved 80% of their healthcare costs. Now, what that means is they were averaging, because you know diabetics were on insulin, going out of hospitals, amputations, blah, blah, blah. $248,000 was the average per head cost. Uh, for these patients, they saved $192,000 per patient. <laughs> That's an 80% savings. I mean, that would solve our healthcare crisis right there. <laughs> if we could cut healthcare costs for diabetics by 80%, I mean, that's what the majority of healthcare costs are. The, the obesity and diabetes is collectively uh, indirect and direct costs is $3.7 trillion a year. That's about our fe total federal tax revenue. <laughs> In addition to that, I've heard the stats that are 90% of what the insurance companies take in that they use to pay out on our health is spent in the last six months of somebody's life. Right now we have a system that right when somebody's diagnosed with cancer or the later stages of, of dementia or later stages of diabetes and we're throwing everything we can, the most expensive things to try to keep them alive and that's where a lot of our premiums are going hmm. instead of Prevention. Sure. I mean, 5% of the patients account for 50% of our healthcare costs. And that's why, for anybody who's listening who cares about politics, our health system, it's really what this food, what food fix is about is that there's a lot of merits and there's a lot of things, and you're not against universal health care. Hmm. It's that you're saying that that's not the solution. No, if we, we have if we provide to get ourselves healthy we have to create a healthy economy otherwise as we talked about in part one you're going to run out of money and it's not just food as prevention right people are like oh you create prevention i mean there's a huge cost of that i would say forget about prevention why don't we talk about food as medicine as treatment right i mean you take people with advanced diabetes heart failure kidney failure liver failure like this patient we had at cleveland clinic i've talked about many times she wasn't needing prevention, I mean, other than prevention of death, I mean, she needed treatment. 
and the treatment she was on wasn't working. The best medical care on the planet wasn't working because what she had wasn't a medicine deficiency. She had a food problem and she was eating foods that were making her sick and fat and diabetic. And within three days, she got off her insulin. In three months, she got off all her medications. In a year, she lost 116 pounds and reversed every one of her diseases and on no medication and saved 20,000 a year in copay. That's what we need to do in America is provide mechanisms for, for healthcare to change so that we reimburse that. And that's a lot of what I talk about in the book. What are the national policies we need? How do we change our policies in health and human services and Medicare and Medicaid? How do we change our, our food policies around what we do for SNAP recipients? How do you actually change the labeling and marketing of food so kids aren't targeted? I mean, I mean Drew, it, it's staggering to me. These food companies literally do advanced brain MRI functional imaging on children to see how to influence their choices, desires, and behavior. That should be illegal, but we do it in this country. And it's so pervasive that I don't even think that people understand how challenging it is. Talk about the other things that the food industry does to boost their profits and really sort of trick us as consumers into staying in this sick care system. Well, you know, the government has multiple agencies that are uh, overseeing our food policy. And, and uh, it doesn't support health. It supports disease through the ways in which it allows the food industry to run rampant. Like I said, the agricultural and food industry is the number one lobby group in Washington. It is driving so many of our food policies, for example, to allow unrestricted food marketing to kids and everybody else. Uh, and, and we know that these children who watch these ads have no idea um, you know what what they're seeing. They they can't distinguish reality from TV until they're eight years from uh, fiction until they're eight years old. Uh, the stealth marketing is staggering. The, la, I think last year there was 5.4 billion with a B billion ads on Facebook for junk food for kids. There are there are stealth advertising through social media like Adver Games, where these kids are playing these free games on social media, and they and they end up embedding McDonald's and Oreo cookies and other things into it. So. So these food, these food companies are, are very focused on protecting their profits. Uh, they're, again, they're the biggest industry on the planet. They are the biggest employer uh, in the country. The food and farm workers are about 20 million people in America. And, uh, and they, they are producing food, which is extremely harmful. And it, it, their, their existence depends on selling more of it. And so they, they form all these different tactics, whether it's front groups that mislead the public, uh, such as the American Council on Science and Health, which says that high fructose corn syrup, pesticide smoking, and uh, PCBs and dioxin are all fine and safe for us. <laughs> there are groups like uh, spinning the truth, where they where they basically uh, unduly influence the, the 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 social groups like the NAACP and Hispanic Federation by co-opting and funding Coca Cola fund funded the NAACP two point one million dollars, which is why. Uh, they oppose, for example, the ban on large large portion drinks in New York. Uh, they fund the Hispanic Federation, and they co-op professional associations like the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics gets forty percent of its funding from the food industry. And and what was striking was that there was this woman who was running for president, almost got elected, um, Neva Cochran, who actually was in the pocket of big food. And big ag, and and consulted for McDonald's and Pepsi and I think Monsanto, who knows what. And uh, she ran for president, and she posted a tweet, which had I have it in the book, which was so striking to me, I had to put it in there. It was, it was a book a cartoon, right? of a cheerleader from the fifties, Jenny, who uh, you know basically you know is a cheerleader, runs around all day, and she says, you know, uh, Jenny needs a sugarless drink. Soft drink like a beetle needs a hairpiece. Uh, two, four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? Uh, what do we appreciate? Sugar. <laughs> I'm like crazy. Which was an actual ad. Ad. And then she writes in her tweet: Teens can get you know their calories from soda and you know sports drinks and blah 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 blah. You know, and sugar is the bomb. And I'm like, whoa. So there's so much going on in the dark that we don't even know of. And of course, the lobbying. You know, there was something called the cheeseburger bill, which was introduced that prohibited food companies from being sued, like McDonald's were being sued for creating obesity. And and why the food companies are terrified about that is called discovery. 
because it means that once there's a lawsuit, they can actually go in and see their emails and see their internal documents and expose what they're doing. Just like they did with Big Tobacco. Exactly. And And they they found out they actually knew. They knew. They knew. They knew. They were the CEOs were all lying to Congress. They knew it was addictive, and they're creating false science. And the food industry spends twelve billion dollars a year creating false science. Twelve billion, twelve times what our government spends on nutrition research, and and so you, you've got all these incredible manipulative techniques that the food industry uses to confuse the public, to to co-op professional societies, to create front groups to co-op social groups i mean it, it's a it's a coordinated massive campaign so this cheeseburger bill uh the the the, the attempt was to block it uh to actually promote it. it actually passed in the house believe it or not wow and the guy who was behind it was a i think rick scott from florida who was turned out was was through super PACs and stuff was given three hundred thousand dollars from the food industry, from McDonald's and Wendy's to to his campaign, you know, to donate. And you can say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter where they get their money. Like, it does matter. Trust me, it does matter. And I can tell you, as a doctor, the research is so clear that when a drug company comes in your office with a drug rep and they give you a pen or they give you a cup or they tell you a good story, then guess what? You're more likely to actually prescribe that drug. It's just the way it is. And whether doctors think it or not, the data proves it. And the same thing, you know, in, in other industries. So I think we have to be just really smart about how coordinated, deliberate, methodical they are in trying to subvert doing the right thing. And what, before I finish with that, the good news is that there are companies now that are smelling smelling the which way the wind's blowing. And they get that people care about regenerative agriculture. They care about climate. They that care about behavior is changing. They can care about sustainability. They want organic. They want whole foods. And so they're changing. In fact, the GMA, which is a grocery manufacturer of America, one of the most uh, uh, pernicious uh, trade associations responsible for the anti-GMO labeling and much more, were trying to block everything, soda tax, whatever they could. And, uh, and four companies bailed, called Nestle, Danone, Mars, and Unilever, all bailed from that group. That group ended up disbanding because everybody left <laughs> and is now has some other name and has recreated itself in another form, but is much weakened because I think food industry is getting it. They need to be part of the solution, not just part of the problem. And that's a good thing. Because the new tide is also coming. There's yes. new managers that are coming in, new VPs, sure. new individuals. Sure. And a lot of those millennials are taking over. Millennials are taking over. Gen X. Yeah. They're listening to your podcast. They're yeah. doing your diet. Yeah. They're waking up and realizing, well, if I don't eat this way and live this way, why am I selling it? And they're buying up and coming new brands, yeah. companies that you've invested in, companies that others are creating. They're out there. And we actually do need Big Foods help to change the food system. We do. And the way that we get them to pay attention is we have to first understand how pervasive the challenge is and the problem and how they trick us in all their different yes. ways and then spread the word and most importantly vote with Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I I'm, you know, I'm I was sort of skeptical of big food and I'm like, oh, they're just whatever. But you know, I've been in these conferences and I mean talking to, you know, General Mills and they're they committed a million acres to regenerative ag. You know, we've got uh, a whole regenerative and ag group in Danone, and Nestle is focused on this, and and they're really working on getting the junk out of their ingredients, junk ingredients out of their food. So I, I do see change happening. It's not fast enough for me, but I think it's in the right direction. I mean, I would never wish, you know, economic failure to people or anything else like that, but one sign of that change being super telling, it's all over social media, is that there's a lot of traditional dairy farms that are going bankrupt because milk sales are down incredibly. People are shifting to plant-based milk, not having milk at all, and that just happened in the last few years. In fact, the milk uh, association, the organization around milk and the dairy farmers that was out there, tried to use Congress to subvert the growth of plant-based milk and non-dairy milks that are out there, like cashew and almond milk. There's a whole thing by, you could call it milk or not. Yeah, you can't call it milk anymore, and you can't have it in the milk aisle. And then grocery stores were part of the group that said, guys, listen, this is what our customers want. We're not going to support this. And they didn't go with yeah, ag yeah. in that area, with the yeah, dairy farms. Yeah. And that's how we ended up in that situation. Yeah. And this all just happened in the last five years. Yeah, Change board, is board possible. And board and milk just went bankrupt. It's crazy, yeah. but it also a sign that we can make a difference. We can vote with our dollar. But we have to get educated. We have to see what's out there. Absolutely. Mark, what's your message 
that you want to end off with. It's book launch day. Yes. The book is out there, Food Fix. We talked a lot about the problems that are out there. We did incorporate some solutions, but give us a closing message for the audience. Well, I think the great news is there's a lot of things citizens can do, businesses can do, government policymakers can do, philanthropists, non-governmental groups, and everybody's working on this problem in one way or another. I mean, I see this happening, and I am super hopeful. So after talking to dozens of experts, reading what's happening around the world, this is a problem people are waking up to. And the reason I wrote Food Fix, the reason I wrote this book is out today, is to tell the story, to give hope, yeah, to look at the problems, but also look at the solutions. And that's why it's called Food Fix, not Food Apocalypse, right? <laughs> and I think, and I think uh, as part of the book, we've got this, this action guide, which is all the resources and things that you can do in your life, step by step, what you can do to help advocate for policy change, what government policies makes you do, what businesses you need to do to innovate, and how we actually can fix this because we all need to fix it and we all need to be part of the solution. And I, I'm really excited because, you know, most books are, are great for me and fun and help me help so many people get better from all sorts of chronic issues. But this one, you know, is not just a book for me. It's a mission and it's a movement. And, and I've been really lucky to collaborate with some incredible experts who helped launch and strategize Bono's One campaign that raised $100 billion almost from Congress to address AIDS and poverty in Africa. And they're working on this problem with me bipartisan group, Republicans, Democrats, policymakers, strategists, messaging people, grassroots coalition builders, and we are building a movement. It's going to launch May 2020 uh, called the Food Fix Campaign. It's going to be both grassroots and also an advocacy group. So the good guys can do some lobbying and educate congressmen and senators and and about these issues because they really don't know. I mean, I sat on a boat this summer with a very prominent senator, and spent two hours talking to him about this, and his mouth was hanging open. He wasn't aware of these issues. He wasn't aware of these problems. He, he knew bits and pieces and fragments, but he didn't know this as a story that all fit together that has a solution. And I'm so excited about this solution. I'm so excited about this book. And, and the truth is we need everybody on board. So whether you can just write a letter, whether you can change something in your life, whether you make a compost pile, wherever you can fit in, there's something that you can do. You can donate to an organization that's doing good, like Kiss the Ground. You can donate to the Food Fix campaign. Whatever you want to do, you can be a part of this and make the change happen because we all can and we all need to. And it's what we have to do. Otherwise, we're really screwed. So I'm super excited about this and I'm just grateful for everybody who's been part of my podcast, who's listened and who cares about these issues with me and is willing to fight the fight. So thanks for listening. Thank you for being on your own podcast, Dr. Mark Hyman. It's an honor to interview you here. And I want to also give you a note of gratitude. I've seen you take a lot of crap from every different group that's out there who disagrees with your thoughts and ideas, especially as you've been getting into social injustice, as you've been getting into climate change, as you've been talking about how certain diets help the environment, how they don't always help the environment, have you been busting myths? And I wanna commend you for staying true and keep and continuing to put the message out there and fight through the noise, even though it's not popular, even though it's not always exciting to you, uh, you've saved the course and you've published a book that really is the path for us to fix our economies and the planet and our own bodies. Yeah, and I don't have all the answers. I'm just beginning the conversation. I'm bringing together all the people. If you're listening, if you're an activist, if you can do something, if you're a member of some big food corporation, you want to get involved. I mean, you can. I, I met with a guy who was a top guy at Cargill, and now we're working together, which I thought was the enemy, right? Because they're one of the biggest food companies in the world that's doing a lot of destruction. But they're interested. They're listening. They care. And by having these conversations, like I said, we're all human first. We all care about our families. We all care about the, the communities we live in. We all care about our nation. We all care about the world in some level or another. And, and I think that's what we have to appeal to. That's what's going to bring us together. And that's what's going to save us from the army of the dead. <laughs> the book is out there, foodfixbook.com. It's in stores. Today's book launch day. Please go pick it up and get all the incredible bonuses, including if you heard the earlier part of the conversation, Mark's longevity masterclass, see his tips and tricks that he got into when he got really sick because he wants to live a long time to get this message out there. You can find it at foodfixbook.com. And the action guide. And the action guide to five steps to heal the planet and yourself. All the good stuff that you get from pre-ordering the book. Be a part of the campaign. We would appreciate it. 
And you can find Dr. Hyman on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Dr. Mark Hyman. That's Dr. Mark Hyman. Mark, thanks for being a guest on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening, everybody. And if you love this conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts in a comment. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Share with everybody you know. And we'll see you next week on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hey, it's Dr. Hyman. Do you have FLC? Well, it's a problem that so many people suffer from and often have no idea that it's not normal or that you can fix it. So what's FLC? Well, it's when you feel like crap. And you know the feeling. It's when you're super sluggish and achy and tired, your digestion's off, you can't think clearly, you have brain fog, or you just feel kind of run down. Can you relate? I know most people can. In my experience as a practicing physician over the last 30 years, I've identified four main causes that lead to FLC. The first cause is too much sugar in the diet. Surprise. Uh, don't think eat that much sugar, think again. Processed carbs from bread, pasta, and cereal turn into sugar in the body. In fact, whole wheat bread spikes your blood sugar more than plain old table sugar. A diet that's high in processed carbs and sugars is the number one culprit for FLC. Okay, the second cause of FLC is not enough nutrient-dense whole foods. It's not just about avoiding sugar and processed carbs. It's also about what you do eat. Most of us don't eat enough of the right kinds of foods. This means healthy fats, clean protein, and loads of colorful plant foods. If I look at your plate, I should be able to see a rainbow. The rainbow that comes from Mother Nature, not from candy. All right, the next cause of FLC is eating too late and at the wrong time. The research shows that eating too late disrupts the quality of sleep we get at night which can make us sluggish the next day. It also makes us hungry and crave carbs and sugar. Research also seems to show that eating too frequently and not giving your body a break from food for 12 to 14 hours negatively impacts the body's circadian rhythms and the repair processes in the body. That's why when we eat is just as important as what we eat. Now the final cause of FLC is not prioritizing sleep. This is the number one mistake I see people make, even those of us who think we're healthy. You see, sleep is when our bodies naturally detoxify and reset and heal. Can you imagine what happens when you don't get enough sleep? You guessed it, you feel like crap. So now that we know what causes FLC, the real question is, what the heck can we do about it? Well, I hate to break the news, but there is no magic bullet solution. FLC isn't caused by one single thing, so there's not one single solution. However, there is a systems-based approach, a way to tackle the multiple root factors that contribute to FLC. And that systems-based approach involves three pillars, eating the right food, incorporating two key lifestyle habits, and a few targeted supplements. I've combined all three of these key pillars into my new 10-day reset system. It's a protocol that I've used with thousands of community members over the last few years to help them break free of FLC and reclaim their health. The 10-Day Reset combines food, key lifestyle habits, and targeted evidence-based supplements. Each of these areas supports our health, but when combined together, they can address the root causes that contribute to FLC. Together, they're a system, and that's why I call my 10-Day Reset a systems approach. Now, FLC is a diagnosis, it's not a medical condition, it's just something we fall into when life gets busy, or when we indulge a little too much around the holidays, or don't listen to our body's messages. It's our body out of balance. Now, everyone gets off track here and there, and the 10-Day Reset was designed to help you get back on track. Now, it's not a magic bullet. It's not a quick fix. It's a system that works. If you want to learn more and get your health back on track, just visit getpharmacy.com. That's getpharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y.com.